1: Once again, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to Spiritual Insights. Today, we'll be discussing a sensitive topic, but one that touches all of us. At one point or another, we will all lose someone close to us, or we will find ourselves helping a friend or loved one who has. Gender, how we were raised, value systems, and life experiences all have an impact on how we grieve and how we heal. Men and women grieve differently and are helped by different means. With us today to discuss some new findings about the stages of grief and how men and women grieve is Natasha Josefowicz, Ph.D., author of Living Without, The One You Cannot Live Without, a collection of powerful, gritty, candid, and inspiring poems about moving on in life after experiencing a major loss. It was recently named one of the best books of 2013 by Kirkus Reviews. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the show, The inspiring Natasha Josephowitz. Welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you with us today.:
0: Thank you, Charlotte. I'm looking forward to this.
1: I'm happy to hear that. Well, I'd like to get started, Natasha. I, it's been four years since your husband of many years passed away, and That's right. last year mm-hmm, and last year you lost your brother and your son in the same year. So with your yes. blessing, I would like to dedicate this segment to your loving husband and your brother and your son. Is that okay?
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate this, Charlotte. That's very kind of you.
1: You're welcome. It's, I think we can all connect on this, on this issue. It's a major part of life, and helping each other get through it, I think, is one of our primary purposes. But you've had a, quite an interesting life. You were born in Paris to Russian parents. Could you yes. tell us a little bit about your early life and coming to the united states
0: yes well you know these were war times Uh, by the way i'm 87
1: in fact i don't like to
0: say i'm 87 i i like to say i'm going to be 88 it sounds even better so yes this was war time i was 12 years old uh we were already sitting in basements in paris with gas masks on because we were all talking about the germans are going to gas us with that mustard gas so, um, these were very difficult times, and we decided, why don't we immigrate to America? Uh, the war won't last long. We will win it, and all will be well. So, we got out with the last boat out of Genoa, came to America. This is Ellis Island. None of us spoke English. Uh, difficult times, and then... Um, We were in California in 1940 when France fell, and there was nothing to go back to. And so here we are in America, and it's been good to us.
1: Wow. And stories like yours should give us all pause as Native-born Americans who feel that life was so difficult that we lose perspective, that people like you had to flee and come over on a boat. I know several people who have had to do that, So I applaud your strength right off the bat. There are so many incredible
0: immigrant stories. My husband's mother came at age 14 by boat, taking care of her 12-year-old sister. I mean, the immigrant stories are really quite amazing. So, but I want to tell you why I wrote this book. You know, it's strange. Um, I taught the first course, Women in Business in the Country back at University of New Hampshire in the 1970s. So I, I'm a professor, I'm an academician. So when I had so much pain, when my husband died, we were very close. We were joined at the hip. He was a professor of economics, I was a professor of business, and once he was dead, I was a total loss. So what helped me was to write. And so the book is actually a journey through grief into healing. Uh, it is... What I was going through on a daily basis, I just wrote it down. You know, people are told, keep a journal. You know, you've heard that. So, yes, a journal is really important, and my journal was really these poems. I had no idea that they would ever become a book, and they did. And what I hear from people who read it, they say they don't feel alone. They understand, because so much of what I went through is a really universal experience. One of the things that I find, if you're willing to go where the pain is, where you're embarrassed, where you're vulnerable, where you're angry, where you're whatever, if you're willing to go there, people relate to it because that's where they are too. Right. It becomes universal.
1: Yes, it is universal. And I have to say, in less than 100 pages, you took me back 20 years to the worst time in my life after a loss. And you literally had me choked up at the table of contents, just the the titles of the poems I knew what was coming. So what I had to do was take a deep breath, start reading. It took it took some courage to touch the scar of the biggest, deepest wound of my life. But what it showed did me... did it
0: help you, Charlotte? Did it what help it you because me? it resonated?
1: Absolutely. But what it showed me, above all else, is how far I've come in my own healing process. And I was left with a feeling of strength and pride. So I want to thank you for that because it really helped me to not feel like broken or damaged, and it made me feel proud of hanging in there and still wanting to live and and holding on to that will to live. So thank you for that. Charlotte,
0: we are all survivors. We are all resilient, and we are all survivors. And I want to give permission to everybody who is still going through some very bad spots that it is okay. What I call writing, what I'm writing, is giving permission to... Feel abnormal. If you're feeling abnormal, that's normal. If you're grieving, you're feeling abnormal. You're feeling crazy. And that is normal to feel that way. And people always have friends who say, well, why don't you go out? You you, you shouldn't stay home so much. And then their friends will say, what is going on already? That's much too soon. Everybody has their way of what you should be doing, and there is no right way. Everybody grieves in their own way, and whatever that is, don't listen to what other people's expectations are because that's not yours and that's really important
1: it is, and everybody has an opinion, and they they generally come up at the worst times, but I had to kind of shrug that off as well uh, because I became I wanted to be solitary and deal with this. I did not want to interact at first, then eventually I did, and people were saying things like we'll just get over it and oh time heals all wounds but do you believe that that time does heal all wounds or do you feel like I do that time kind of pulls you forward in spite of your feelings to a place no, where you to, can no. choose to allow that healing to take place
0: no no you know it, uh, time does heal and I'll tell you why the body could not continue living with as much pain as some people have when their spouse dies. it is so awful that you just cannot remain in that state or you wouldn't you wouldn't be healthy, you wouldn't live, you wouldn't whatever. And right. this is why time does heal. It is the resiliency in our brains and in our bodies. One of the things that I did not expect to find, I interviewed over 50 people who had just lost a spouse. That helped me to understand what is this grief about? Why is it so painful? Does everybody grieve the same way? What is really going on? And does one heal? How? When? And so I interviewed over 50 people, and I found something which is not in the literature, which no one had looked at, and that is I found men and women grieve very differently, heal very differently. And in fact, let me just give you one example of it is so typical. Um, This is a man I'm asking, you have a friend who just lost a wife. How would you help? He says, oh, I would take a out for lunch or to a golf game, and we'd talk of other things. I asked a woman, you have a friend who just lost a husband. How would you help? Oh, I would bring some food over to her house, and we'd sit and we'd talk and cry together. I mean, you know, this is the the typical difference between men and women. Men go into denial, and women deal with it. Now, I want to say something. The myth is denial is bad you should work through your grief if you don't work through your grief it'll come back to haunt you that is not true i have found that if people use denial and it works for them and they move on that's fine who are we to say no no this isn't the right way to do it and i found that a lot of men use denial and move on and are perfectly okay with it i have a whole series of differences how men and women grieve differently. Tell me if you want me to talk about them now. Yes, please do. Okay. So, first of all, um, there's the men have... Okay? Hello?
1: Hello? Sorry about that. No, I'm here. I was Skype doing that, and it just... uh... No, no no weird, but sure. just start over and I can take that out. No problem.
0: No problem. So
1: okay.
0: uh, one of the things that we found is that um, men um, have a higher suicide rate. They have a 6% higher suicide rate than the general population right after a spouse dies. And that mm-hmm. is because men have lost a caretaker. Women have lost a driver, a computer programmer, uh, a handyman. These can mm-hmm. be replaced. A caregiver cannot. caregiver cannot. However, at the end of a year, uh, Charlotte, have you heard about the casserole brigade? This no. is all these women who come with casseroles. At the end of a year, most men are already with a woman with the best casserole.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness.
0: <laughs> and and now the but there's a reason for this, too. First of okay. all, men need to reconnect with someone quicker than women do. But also, when you think of the statistics, uh, older, the older the man gets, the larger his pool of available females. The older a woman gets, the smaller is her pool of available males. In fact, I'm going to tell you a bad joke. This is, this is really a bad joke. Okay. okay. This is yeah. a rep- retirement community. This man comes in and a woman says, oh, you're a new resident. And he says, yes, yes, I just came in yesterday. She says, oh, and where do you come from? And he says, well, I was in jail. Oh, you were in jail. Why were you in jail? Well, I murdered my wife. Ha, huh. you're single.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Okay. No, no. <laughs> yes. This says a lot. This, this mm. says how men are the premium and they have a lot of women who are available to them, and when a woman is widowed in an older age, she has no available man around. I'm, you know, as I told you, I'm 87. My mm-hmm. pool of available men is zilch. you know, because men die earlier. How many men are there in the late 80s that would be available partners? So yes. that's very few. Cool. Let me tell you a few of the other things I have found. Okay. That, for instance, I'm looking at signs of depression, uh, you know, women dep- show depression the way we all know how they cry, the feelings of hopelessness, uh, feeling too tired to do anything or go anywhere, just getting out of bed is difficult. Men, on the other hand, show depression very differently. If you see a man who has wife died and he exhibits risk-taking behavior, self-destructive behavior, substance abuse, anger, irritability, these are signs of depression for a man. Because, you know, boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. And right. so they show their grief in a very different way. And that's important for us to understand that when a man grieves, it is, very, it is not the way you expect it if you're a woman. Then I looked yes. at eating habits. That was funny. Men, I asked men, well, how are you eating since your wife died? Well, I go I buy rotisserie chicken and I said, well, how do you eat it? Well, I stand at the kitchen sink and I eat it with my hands. You ask a woman, well, how are you eating habits? Well, I don't eat as well as I used to. I don't like cooking for myself, but I sit down with a plate and a knife and a fork and, uh, you know, try and eat more or less healthily. Again, it's Mm -hmm. very, very different. Then Mm -hmm. I looked at grief workshops. You know, women go to grief workshops much more than men, and that is because men have trouble seeing people cry, whereas women find it helpful to be able to go to a place and see that other people feel the same as they do and cry. Women are helped by talking; men are not. And mm. it's interesting. I I looked at tears. You know, they say help how um, crying helps. You know that crying from grief. They examine the t- content of tears. Tears actually have toxic elements in them. In other words, when you cry from grief, these tears have some toxicity from the body that is being released. And I think that's really important to say that uh, and to understand that.
1: I noticed that, actually, yes. because you noticed when for you too? I noticed a difference in, I will use the word sickness, of my tears, where if yes. I was crying over something kind of nonsensical, my tears were very watery. But when I was crying from grief, there was a higher salt content and... There was an effect on my face. Um, this you know is so
0: interesting, really.
1: I noticed you that. You know, I
0: never heard anyone say that. This is this is very interesting. One should look at thought content and just this is fascinating, Charlotte. I'm really glad you told me this. The
1: Let me rephrase this. Just just one second, Natasha. Let me rephrase this because my audience is used to me using certain vocabulary, so I want to say it this way: if right. we are if we are crying over something because of a Failed expectation, a disappointment, or um, a, a sudden detachment, uh, unattachment to something.
0: We're going uh-huh. to cry.
1: We're going to cry from the ego, and that's where you find the watery tears. But when you uh-huh. are crying soul level, that is where I noticed the salt content was at its highest, and it, your your face uh, tightened because of the salt. But what made me feel better was the salt because it absorbs negativity. So it's this whole bio-spiritual process that is taking place as you grieve. Um, I'll hand that back to you now, but I wanted them to hear me say that. This is so interesting.
0: You have just added to my whole bunch of new findings that I'm having. Thank you for that. You know, the Uh other thing I found which I found uh, interesting, men tend to increase the activity level. Women tend to decrease it. Men uh, pretend they're okay. I'm fine. Just fine women do too but much less so women are willing to be vulnerable men are not and the most interesting thing i found no one has ever looked at birth order and grief this is what yes. i found people who were raised as alone children lone children have mm-hmm. learned to deal with being alone have learned to find friends have learned to get resources on how to deal with being an only child When a spouse dies, these resources are still there. These people manage better being alone, again, than people who had a lot of siblings and were raised in a large family. Mm -hmm. Now, I found that really quite interesting, and actually, when you think about it, really not surprising. Uh, The other thing that I found is that when uh, men uh, grieve, they... Uh, they don 't show anything at all ever. Um, they are stalwart, uh, they go out, they all pretend everything is okay, but inside it is really, really difficult. They are in terrible, terrible pain. men don 't show that pain. Mm-hmm. Women are willing to show that, and women are willing to, and I'm, so i 'm wondering why why is that? Well, think of uh, how men and women talk generally you know that women use twice as many words as men do? And yeah. that women in their brains have a larger verbal area than men do, so that just, and women just have an easier time talking than men do to begin with. And so, of course, when you think of it, when there's grieving, they have an easier time talking about it. And also the way we were raised, you know, whether the value systems, how, how women are raised differently from men. Men don't show pain. You know, when you think of all these uh, games, men play football and whatever, they get injured, they continue playing. You know, this yes. is crazy. Men are really crazy that way. They yes. really have to be macho. Women don't have that that whole thing that this is what they have to do. There is one uh, one guy told me something. And I will tell you what he said, and you will hear this, and then you will know that this is not a statement a woman could ever make. This is what I said. Hi, um, I've known your wife for a long time, and I just heard she died. How are you coping? And he says, oh, well, you know, it's like golf. If I miss a shot, I don't obsess over it. It's the same thing. I'm thinking, oh, Hmm. my God. Could a woman ever make that statement? No. This is only a statement a man could have made, not a woman. Is that
1: interesting? Absolutely, it is interesting.
0: Yeah. So these are the kinds of things um, coming across, which I've found, you know, that no one's ever looked at. And so we need we need to understand that these are differences, and we need to relate to men and women very differently as to what their needs are. I, in fact, can I tell you? There's a poem I wrote called "The Facade," which happens right right after when you are either grieving or when you are still taking care of someone who is dying.
1: Yes, I I have a post-it note right here. Go ahead. Would you like to read it out loud?
0: May I do that now? Yes. I walk around with a facade. It's like a cardboard replica of me, which I hold up with my two hands. It's what people see. I smile, make small talk. No, I'm not really doing better, but thanks for asking. I can go anywhere with my facade give a speech, run a meeting, have a pleasant meal with friends. Hugging is not permitted. To hug, one must go behind the cardboard cutout where one encounters mush, a puddle, a pitchable mess that breaks down in tears. So no hugs. Perhaps I need a suit of armor to encircle me all around. We all do that. You know what I do? Um, After my husband died, I was a mess. And I live in a retirement community, and so I walk into the dining room and there's people. So just before walking in, I say to myself, okay, Natasha, show time. I walk in, I feel horrible, and I say, hi, how are you? And I talk and smile and so on. And you know what? why it's important? The brain thinks something is good happening to you, and it sends endorphins. It sends dopamine. It sends some good hormones. Because if you're laughing and smiling, the brain thinks, Oh, it's okay and after a while you feel okay. In other words, fake it till you make it really works. Yes. And so I encourage people to when things are really bad, if you pretend for a little while that it's okay, you will in fact feel better. And so it's okay to do that. And it's important I, to do that.
1: I agree with that. Absolutely.
0: You know, do you remember, Charlotte, do you remember um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? She yes. had the stages of grief. Well, you know, she wrote them for people who were dying, and they didn't work for people who were grieving. And so I, after all my research and reading, I have now the seven steps of emotional grief, of how the steps one goes through. Can, are you, can I tell you about some of them?
1: I want to talk interested? about that. Yes, please, let's do the five stages of grief.
0: Okay, and I have seven. These oh, are you have not seven. stages oh, even because better. Okay. i tell you why they're not stages. Stages mm-hmm. sound like this is something that begins and ends, and then you move on to something else. I call it states of grief. i tell you why. Because some of them you don't go through. There may be new ones I don't know about. Then they are recycled, and then there is no specific timeline. Like, let me tell you one of the ones that is not really a state of grief. Um, it's called, I call it pre-grief. These are people who have been caregivers. Were you a caregiver for your husband for a while, or did he die suddenly? I,
1: I He he died suddenly, but I don't know if you know a lot about me, um, psychic. So I kind of knew it was coming, and I did my best to keep him alive, and in the end I found out that God was a lot more powerful than me. But... Uh-huh. Um, I was, what made it complicated and what made the grieving process complicated for me is because our relationship was complicated in that I was his girlfriend, his best friend, and his mother figure. So I, I lost see. my friend and my child. I see. And I understand future. that.
0: Okay. So what happens, what they, because I've looked at people who were caregivers for a long time. People who are caregivers for a long time usually have dropped out of the social scene. And then your partner dies. And so you have dropped out of the social scene, and you now have a gap in your life because you don't have anyone to care for. These right. are the people having a lot of trouble. So the first state I call is shock. People are in shock. They are more in shock if it's a sudden death than if they've had you know, some preparation, the person was sick for a while. But then here you are in shock, and you're supposed to think of funerals, and the relatives are coming. It's a very difficult time. But then what happens, and I call it the second state, is numbness. And I think it's a protective thing by the brain. You feel numb. People say, I feel nothing. I feel like a zombie. I feel like Mm -hmm. an alien. And... And I think it's a protective time when, in fact, this is the time when you're supposed to talk to your lawyer and your accountant and change um, the, the, the registration of your car and these yes. all of these things going on. Then after numbness, I call it disbelief. Disbelief is when you can't really believe this has happened, that the phone rings, you think it's him or her. Let me read you a poem I wrote. It's called Maybe. Maybe okay. it's all a mistake. Maybe it wasn't real. Maybe it was a bad dream. Maybe it didn't happen. Maybe when I come home tonight, he'll be there saying hi. How was it? And I'll tell him all about it, except he wasn't there, and he didn't ask. So this is this disbelief when um, you ca- can't quite fathom that you're alone. And finally, after disbelief comes reality. This is a time where people cry a lot. The reality is when you really understand. That you're alone that there is no one else i wrote a poem called firsts i can't Mm -hmm. believe all the mundane things he took care of that were not in my job description how many firsts have there been the first time i figured out how to fix the tv program the video recorder play dvds the first time i put gas in the car charlotte you won't believe this i had never put gas in the car because my husband did uh, the first time I had to open a bottle of wine, lug heavy groceries, take out the garbage, tried open a stock drawer, filled out tax forms, renew the newspaper, reset all the clocks to daylight saving time, changed the light bulb, bulb. You know, it's amazing all the things men do that women don't. And, mm-hmm. being, and now a new first, being sick at night, throwing up with no one to bring me a washcloth, give me a glass of water, and feel sorry for me. How many more firsts will there be? I'm not looking forward to them. You know, it's interesting. Men and women really have a division of labor. And when one dies, all of a sudden, you have to do all the things that your spouse did. And one never realizes how much of it it is until all of a sudden, there you are. And men usually have trouble picking up a phone and making a date. Because the woman is in charge of the social stuff. And Mm -hmm. women have trouble with everything else that I I just listed. So there you are. You are in this reality state. And then you have to start thinking, well, it's time for me to start going out in the world and becoming normal. And I call this alienation. I'll tell you why I call it alienation. We live in a couple's world. And here you are single. And being single in a couple's world is very difficult. Um, And I'll tell you why. I wrote a poem called Alone at a Party. Going Mm -hmm. alone to a party, will the people there be friendly? Will someone talk to me? Or will I stand in a corner, glass in hand, scanning the room for a familiar face, not finding one, looking for a smile or a nod, approaching close-knit groups, unable to enter? I am a stranger among the natives an alien in a foreign land that will go home early tonight. This is what happens to a lot of women. I don't know if that happened to you after uh, your husband died, but first of all, I lost a lot of friends. And then a woman friend would call me and say, you know, a couple, and say, oh, are you free? I said, yeah, I'm free all the time. I says, well, how, should we have dinner? She says, no, no, not dinner, lunch. Women go. Well, women who are widowed, they go for lunch. Or then the yeah. one would call me and say, "Oh, should we have dinner?" I said, "With the two of you?" No, no, my husband's on a trip. In other words, the single woman is invited by couples only when the man is away or for lunch. Have you experienced that too?
1: Yeah. the The, the hardest for me was actually at the funeral itself because the one person who could have helped me through it was in that vulgar-looking box. And I was alone at the funeral like that. There was all couples around me.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. Even today, it's a couples' world wherever I go. I mean, at my age, we have more widows around, so there are more single women. But uh, there are very few single men, and it's it's very strange. I I call single women shoulds. I tell you what I mean. I mm-hmm. when my husband and I were together and we have a few women friends who lost their husbands, I would say to my husband, oh, you know, Ruth is alone. We really should invite her. Or Jeannie's husband died. We really should have her over. All of a sudden, instead of saying, why don't we meet with so-and-so like a couple, all of these single women become shoulds because we feel sorry for them. And so it's, it's kind of like a burden. It's very, very odd. Now, I'm asking all the listeners now, you who are couples, How often do you invite a single person to join you who was just recently widowed? I'm betting that it is not often enough. And so I'm saying extend your hand to the people who you normally were friendly with when they were couples, and all of a sudden they're single, and they leave, you know, they're left very much alone to themselves. It's a strange thing that odd numbers are not comfortable. You know, three is a crowd, the fifth wheel. Somehow there's an awkwardness about being three, being five. What I have done, when a couple invites me, I sometimes bring a woman friend along. Being four, even if it's two women instead of a couple, then so we're three women and a man, it's better than just being a single woman. Have you found any of this for yourself?
1: I have, um, you know, people don't know what to say to you, and they just—they tend to scatter and disappear, and then you do get invited, but then you feel <laughs> like the third wheel, especially if they don't invite a fourth person. That's um, right. So, so that's difficult, but I, I want to point out that the poems you just read, the several that you just yes. read, and, and what you're saying about inviting people to join you, but make sure... They're not, it's not lopsided. That's all in the first year, which is absolutely the hardest because of the suddenness of it, the shock, the adjustment to a new way of life, and broken plans of a future that's now been stolen, and all the, all the many firsts, like birthdays and holidays, and finally it ends with the first anniversary of their death. It's awful. And that is the time where you should be checking on someone often to make sure they're not suicidal.
0: All anniversaries are really extremely difficult. Not only anniversaries, but also holidays.
1: You yes. know, Easter,
0: Christmas, and birthdays, and all on all, all of these, they are mm-hmm. very very hard. Because I tell you why, it reminds you of the time when there was jolly and wonderful, and you were together. And mm-hmm. so you're even more alone feeling than when when you were t- uh, together than on other days. Uh, yeah. I have. Let me read you our anniversary. Today is our anniversary. No flowers, no cards, no loving words. Today is the first of many anniversaries alone. I was warned about the holidays and the special days. I was warned it would be hard. I did not know how tough it would be to live through this day. Tears that have been absent are lining my lower lips, waiting to spill at the slightest opportunity. They don't need much provocation. Someone's hug, just even hello. So sitting home alone, I'm missing him even more today, our anniversary. So people Mm -hmm. should be warned and should not be alone on an anniversary. Be sure to be with friends. It's really important. You have to take care of yourself. You have to think of these things ahead of time and not be caught. Oh, my God, today's anniversary and I'm all alone. It's horrible.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I, I sometimes wondered why it is most of the women I have, interviewed, and quite a few of the men said they've lost friends. I think people are awkward, you know? People are awkward about, I mean, I meet somebody I haven't seen in a while that used to be a friend, and they're a little embarrassed that they haven't called me. I think people are awkward. They say, how are you? And you're supposed to say, I'm doing fine, and then they're okay. If you don't say you're fine, you say you're really suffering. People don't know what to say. And mm-hmm. I have a list of all the things people have said that really don't work. Like, people have said to me, he's in a better place now. You know, <laughs> that doesn't work. No. the better place was with me. So all of these things where people try and help, somehow doesn't help. You know, the only thing that really helps Charlotte is, I'm sorry. There's really nothing else to say except, yeah. I'm sorry. You know? And, there is... it's, and it's amazing how awkward people feel in in front of someone who's just lost someone, you know, in our culture we don't really have words to make it okay, because somehow dying is not okay, left, being left alone is not okay, and people don't know how to relate to you. It makes it very, very difficult, and it makes it difficult for the others, and so they avoid you. They avoid yeah, you; they, they want to avoid the awkwardness. And so I've lost quite a, surprisingly, I lost quite a few friends, uh, who then, if I bump into them, embarrassed that they never called Uh it's it's a weird situation yes and then after, after alienation I call it the new normal the new normal is where you are where I am where we actually okay people we are actually well we have a secret limp I call this a secret limp because You're not the same as you were before when you were happily married and all was well, but you're still okay. You can still be a strong person. Uh, Okay, I'm going to tell you something which is embarrassing, but I don't know any of your listeners, and so they're not going to catch me walking around in Florida and saying, aha, I know what you're doing. This is, I wrote a poem called Scanning Men. I caught myself scanning Mm. men. I have not done that in 70 years. It used to be boys. Now it's older men. In my age group, I look and wonder whether they're married. I would like to go out with a male companion for a quiet dinner, perhaps a movie that we can talk about later. I have women friends. Why isn't it the same? I'm somehow not sure I am allowed to feel this way. He died. This was at the time he died. He died just over two years ago. Is it too soon for me to wish for couplehood? Am I being disloyal to him and his memory? I feel guilty for catching myself looking at men. So it's a little embarrassing, but two years after he died, I started thinking I I would like to have a man to, to talk to me, you know. It's the Mm -hmm. minutiae of daily life. It is the fact that I have a lot of friends, Charlotte. I have a zillion friends. I have a lot of women friends. I have Mm -hmm. couples. I'm really, really lucky. I live in a retirement community. I never live alone. i tell you what's missing. No one knows I'm talking to you. No one knows what I read this morning in the New York Times. No one knows what I had for lunch, and no one cares. I have a lot of friends, but that's not what they care about. So the minutia of daily life, in other words, no one is the center of my life, and I'm not the center of anyone's life. I don't have anyone I care for really, really deeply, and no one really cares about me really, really deeply. Do do? Can you understand that?
1: Totally. Yes? Totally, because these, these aren't um, the things. They're, they're so meaningful between a couple. How was your day? Or um like in in your relationship with your husband oh i have an idea for another book you know what i mean and and you get to talk and share and and be involved in these things yes. and you don't really call a friend and tell them what you read in the new york times and and have them pretend that they care you know
0: that's right yes i want to this i have a thought i'd like to share it with someone i want to talk to someone mm-hmm. uh, a friend of mine here at this retirement just lost her husband a, a few days ago you know what i do I call her every morning, and I say, so what's your day? How did you sleep? What are you going to do? And I would like to give this advice to all of your listeners. If you have a friend whose spouse has died, call them every day because that's what's missing. Call every morning or every evening, but call every day and ask the stupid questions. What do you have for dinner? Uh, what did you read yes. today? Where did you go? How do you feel? You know, Whatever. Ask the minutiae of the daily life. It is incredibly important. Otherwise, people feel so isolated. It is is—it's such a tough time. I have, I have a poem I wrote, which is called Amazing. Can I say it now? Today I have decided that I'm not half a couple, mourning the one that is gone. I have integrated him within me, And so I am a whole person standing on my own two feet, independent and strong. There is nothing I cannot do, for there is nothing I can't imagine. I have no fears, not of living, nor of dying. I am doing the first, the best I know how, until the second stops me, hopefully, in my tracks. I feel the wisdom of my years of learning that I can use well to make it easier for others' journeys. Mine is drawing to an end. I savor the moments in ways new to me, A quietness has taken hold, like a new distance, a perspective, an understanding. I not know exactly of what. A comfort in my place, a knowing of my time, the word may be serene. It exists, even in new adventures, in willingness for risks, in shoulder strokes at failures, in smiles at foibles, and secret laughter at the amazingness of it all. Mm. I'm amazed that I'm as well as I am. When you are in the middle of horrible pain, you cannot imagine that you could ever feel better. But I want to tell you, listeners, I promise you that time comes because you could not keep surviving without it. And it does happen. It's a matter of racial. You know, some you have all horrible days and then maybe a few minutes, okay. Then you have right. a few horrible days and a few days, okay. Then you have more or less equal. Then you get better days than bad days. And finally... You have mostly good days and once in a while a little bit of a bad day, which is where I am now. When I'm, as I'm talking to you, as I'm reading these, um, it, it's, you know what, Charlotte, it's hard. Right yeah. now it's, it, it's hard because I'm back to the emotions that I felt when it was this difficult. So yeah. this, this happens, and, and that's okay. After I hang up, I will go make myself a cup of tea. And and I will be okay. But it is true that these reminders are not always easy. Yeah. So.
1: I found that I had to ease myself into acceptance not just of the passing but okay, today I am having a bad day, and that's okay. Today I'm having a good day, and I don't have to feel guilty about that. And that's, that's what right. struck me, something that you said earlier, whether, whether you're, looking for, you're looking for simple companionship and maybe someone to hold your hand. And we feel guilty about these things, and guilt serves no purpose whatsoever. If you were honorable in that relationship and you did your best, you have nothing to feel guilty about, When it's time for people to go home to God, it's time, and you can't prevent it, as I learned. You can't change it. So the only way to go is to somehow allow yourself to move into acceptance and then accept each phase along the way, and then eventually you'll remember how to breathe again. That's right. You're very
0: wise. But I have to admit something which is embarrassing to me. Do you know when I see a couple holding hands, I envy them? I'm jealous of people holding hands. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, it's I Absolutely. see a couple, um, you know, uh, brush the lint off his shoulder, or look at each other lovingly, or you know, whenever you see a, a couple that's close, yes. I have this I have this little pang of oh oh right. I want that. It's, yeah,
1: uh, it makes you want I'm, to hit I'm, somebody. I mean, I don't like this in
0: me. I I I mind that I'm the kind of person that envies people holding hands, but I do. I do. Yeah. And, and so it's important not... with these things to say, well, no, well you know, it's, it's probably normal that it you feel cool. that way. And so again, I want to give permission to people to feel all these things and not feel guilty. Whatever it is that you feel when you're grieving, it's normal. It really yeah. is normal. There is no abnormal way of doing it. There's only one. If you years later, have not come out of the grief, and you still feel like a victim of what has happened to you, you may need some professional help. But, you know, it can take two or three years, and that's normal. You yeah. know, we had a lifetime of living with someone, and then all of a sudden you're alone. You can give yourself time to grieve. And if, and if you move on quickly, then that's fine. You're, more, you're resilient. It, whatever it is that you do, quick or slow, it's fine.
1: Yes. There is no rule. There I just is want to no point out that is the best. Absolutely. Well I just want to point out, especially in terms of jealousy and feeling jealous that someone that there's a couple or that someone still has their husband and why don't I have mine? Um, jealousy, yes, it's a it's a difficult emotion to deal with and you would feel guilty for feeling that way, so you have to accept that. However, what I would point out what is not normal is acting on your feelings and taking it out on somebody else which i have seen many many times and you have to be very careful that even though that's the way you're feeling you don't want something to come out of your mouth that is insulting to another simply because they're happy you have to be very careful in your reactions do you agree you know it's it's
0: very important what you're saying you know charlotte i was um i'm a therapist So i'm a I'm a psychologist, my PhD in psychology, and I'm also a psychiatric social worker, so I've done a lot of therapy. And one of the things that I have found, and especially as a therapist, I need to do that, when I see someone angry or mean or irrational, I always think this is an expression of pain that cannot be expressed as pain, and so it's expressed as anger. But behind the anger, there is pain. There is someone who is really suffering. And so instead of being defensive and saying you know what are you angry about and whatever you say where are you hurting where yes. is the pain
1: because, I can see it's a cry for help
0: mm-hmm. yes uh, behind even meanness there is pain because if you think of someone who is a mean person or who is an angry person or who does things that are hurtful to others mm-hmm. the way i think about it is how awful it must be to be that person how awful it must be to be walking in that person's shoes and to feel anger and to be mean to others. And so it must be awful to be them. And so I try and relate to how awful it is to be them and that if they had choices, if they had impulse control, they would prefer it. But that's not available to them. And so what I need to do is help them accept themselves as they are and see what they can do about my whole work is really about making the unconscious conscious as long as you're working unconsciously and you have behaviors that are unconscious you can't control it so if you try and make it conscious then you can at least have some control and some choices i always try and see what is behind this what is it that you're really expressing where is the pain and then you try and understand it and then you can see well what is it that it's hiding and what is it that you really need to do? You know, the hidden agendas. Mm-hmm. You're a psychic, so you must know all these things.
1: I know a bit. I think we yeah. get along very well, Natasha. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, this is good. I'm I sorry. I am live
1: in San Diego and
0: you're in Florida. I don't think we'll ever meet. Do you ever come to San Diego?
1: I've never been to California, but I understand that I have a trip sometime in the near not near near future, but somewhere in the next six to nine months or so, in the next year, I will be going to California. I just don't know why yet, so I'll look forward to that unfolding. Charlotte,
0: everybody can listen to this now. I am officially inviting you to come to San Diego. I have a guest room for you. Now everybody's I heard. <laughs> I would love
1: that. <laughs> I would love that. I have, thank you so much. I am honored, and I will take you up on that offer as my first opportunity. But I want to tell the audience a few things about your book that we haven't kind of covered because I I don't want them to think it's nothing but um, material that is going to bring them down. I really felt inspired, but I also like the way you put it together. And. I feel it will serve as a gentle companion for anyone out there who is suffering, no matter when you lost your loved one. It does not matter how many years have passed, how many days have passed. This, because of the way you write it, you put words to people's feelings, and it will make them, as you said, not feel alone. And, but especially, I'm a writer too, so I was able to put words to my feelings, but many people can't, and they're stuck in that vacuum. So this will help reach in and pull you out so that you can at least connect to your feelings, sit with them, and release them. That is the most important thing because you're going to cause yourself physical health problems, and you need this therapy. And her book is the therapy. I do believe this. But what's most beautiful about it is that it's not just random poetry describing any one emotion or part of the process. It's chronological. From the first jarring diagnosis you received from the doctor that your husband had cancer and only had a short time to live, straight through the funeral, and then the process of adjustment over the first two years or so, and then ending with a newfound sense of well-being and confidence in yourself and your new life alone. And I wanted to ask you, Natasha, were you writing the entire time as therapy or did you kind of go back in time and access the emotions and pour them out onto the pages in an organized. You know, time. it's
0: interesting. I mean, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I don't go to psychologists. But I was having <laughs> such a hard time. I went to a psychologist. I walked in and I said, "My life has lost all meaning." And she said, "You know, meaning is very overrated." And I thought, "Oh, okay. I already feel better. Meaning is overrated. I don't have to have meaning or purpose or goals." It's okay, whatever it is that I feel. By the way, the book is available at Amazon.com. It's only $10. I want it to be not expensive for people living without the one you cannot live without. I tell you the, the, the turnaround poem for me, which is just five lines. My turnaround poem was called Caring About Not Caring. The things I used to care about I no longer do, but I really do care that I don't care about the things I used to care about. And that really I realized that uh, -uh, it's not okay for me to feel my life has no meaning. I have to move on. And I did. You too. Yes. I did. And this is a decision we can actually make. We can pull ourselves out of where we are. We can make ourselves get out of the chair, get out of the room, get out of the house. Yeah. We can make ourselves do it. We can it is important for us to take care of ourselves because no one else is. No one else is going to when you're alone. No. And so absolutely you no. are your own parent, your own spouse. And you must do it. So and I I understand that you have done this, Charlotte, and I really have a lot of respect for you, the way you have lived your life and what I you've told me. And, and, and everybody can do this. Uh, you just push yourself out. Now, I want to tell again the listeners, you know somebody who has just lost a spouse, be there to help because the loan is much harder. For instance, I have people here who say, I can't go into the dining room by myself anymore. I say, I'll go with you. And I have a friend here whom I say, I'll walk in the dining room every single day so you never have to walk into it alone. And you can do this for people. Be there for others. Be kind, be caring, be compassionate. Be there for others. Because these are times where the aloneness is so pervasive that everything is an effort. Everything is hard. Everything is like too much. You can't do it. If there is one other person, just one person who cares, who's there, it's doable. And people can manage their grief much better.
1: I wanted to let the audience know this is not your only book. You are quite the accomplished individual, and you've had a very interesting full life. And for those who may not be familiar with with you, you were quite the trailblazer for women. Um, Aside from oh, I was
0: one of these early feminists back in nineteen the nineteen seventies. I taught the first course women in management in the country, and out of that came a book called Path to Power. A Woman's Guide from First Job to Top Executive. And, you know, it's funny. It was the only book out in the 80s that dealt with women entering these male-dominated organizations. So I, got, I was this consultant. I consulted the FBI, I consulted the CIA to General Motors. I was on Larry King. I was on Dr. Ruth. Oh, I have to tell you something about Dr. Ruth. Remember Dr. Ruth? I it love was so her. funny. I came on her show, and I said, Dr. Ruth, you talk about sex and how to do it at home. I want to talk about sex and to how not do it in the office.
1: <gasps>
0: <laughs> so, so I was there. I was one of these early feminists, and I wrote a lot of textbooks for colleges and so on. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I seem to. Just do whatever feels right for me. And for me, in the 70s and 80s, it was about women in power. And then I wrote another book called You're the Boss, Managing Diversity. This is looking at all the um, people in top management, white, male, Christian, middle class, and workforce, female, younger, older, Hispanic, black, Asian, and so i wrote a book on how to manage these, these diverse populations and then i wrote a book with my husband called fitting in how to get a good start in your new job do you know that a hundred million people change jobs every or get new jobs every day of the week um it's an amazing wow. thing and was nothing written for them so so that's a, so i was writing about all these topics but wherever I was going, I was talking about a very unpopular topic, women and power. Yeah. And so I decided I'm going to be funny. I'm going to be funny, and then it will disarm people. Like for instance, my first poem was called Titles. My grandmother was a lady. My mother is one of the girls. I'm a woman. My daughter's a doctor.
1: <laughs> or,
0: or I wrote Pygmalion. He taught her everything he knew. And now that she knows as much as he does, he doesn't like it. <laughs> or dual career family. When he brings home the bacon, she fries it. When she brings home the bacon too, they eat out. And so I would say these funny poems, and I would like I was the first woman to talk to all the police chiefs of California, and all these men in uniform are sitting there with their arms crossed, and I'm thinking, Oh my God! And so mm-hmm. if if I'm funny, it kind of relaxes people, and then I could talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. I was the sexual Expert for the city of San Diego, sexual harassment expert for the city of San Diego for three years, and I did these funny workshops where I had all the women harass all the men, so that they would feel what it fe- they would know what it feels like. That oh. was really interesting because of the men said, "Oh, I didn't realize it was so much about power because they felt depowered," but the women said, "I didn't know it was so much fun."
1: <laughs> oh my god. I had something funny to share. What? I was working at a place, and I was uh, harassed, and told that if I needed, uh, I needed something printed in, within the company—a huge report that I worked on—and I was told that if if I had to flirt with them, then that's exactly what I would do. So I went yeah. to HR, I went to Human Resources, and complained about this. And next thing you know, all of us are in this big assembly. Having a workshop on sexual harassment in the workplace, and I know I'm the reason we're all there. So, but the funny part is, um, they were trying to use humor to to disarm and diffuse and make it uh, palatable for everybody to listen. But I did say to my coworker uh, at one point, I said, "Well, I'm a member of the secret society of sexual harassers, otherwise known <laughs> as otherwise known as." Sh- and everybody around me heard it because I didn't realize how loud I was talking, and they wanted to know why this gigantic outburst over in my section, I just put my head down, <laughs> wasn't me, otherwise known as shh. So there is a secret society. <laughs> yeah.
0: but, well, you know, there's all that stuff is coming up again now. You know, We are talking a lot about what's going on in the military, what's going on in colleges. It's amazing, isn't it? It's,
1: a, it's very important, and yeah. we really need to look into these things and stop hedging around and going around the edges of it. Get in there, find out what the problem is, and hold people accountable for their actions. That's what we need to right. do, men or women, because women do it too. I've seen it.
0: Well, Charlotte, you and I have certainly been on the same page. It's been just wonderful talking with you. This way. I'm sorry, the hour has gone. It's gone really fast.
1: <laughs> we, have, we have a few minutes if you do. I want to tell everybody about your website, because... You have
0: oh yeah. What so, when I say I just lost my virginity, I have a new oh. website.
1: <laughs> oh, <my goodness. laughs> it's called
0: natashaswords.com. dot com. No apostrophe. <laughs> Natasha's Words, no with an S. No apostrophe yes. dot com. Brand yes. new. It just came on a few days ago. And oh. I have to tell you something amazing. I have a column in Huffington Post. If you look sure. at Huffington Post and put my name Natasha Josephwitz you'll see my column. It's about technology. So you know that they have 20 million readers? is that amazing? That is so, amazing. I, I, was, I was really hopping up and down, so excited. Oh, my God, look who uh, they published me. And so um, I'm going to be sending them something every week. I actually write for local paper. I have a column every week. And so it would be easy. I'll send that column to Huffington, and hopefully they'll have it. So it's Absolutely. big news for me. It's a big deal. That's it's, a, that it's is exciting because i'm this little old lady my
1: heavens yeah you've been on tv you you had your own television segment
0: appear oh yes room, i did NPR. i was weekly, TV section i was on pbs every week uh-huh. yeah that was you know how long ago that was that was 30 years ago and oh, here wow. i am again talking wow. to you
1: and when is your when is your 88th birthday if i may ask what is my what when is your 88th birthday? You're 87 and a half right now.
0: Oh, I'll be 88 on Halloween, October <gasps> 31, and so I'm a certified witch.
1: Okay. I um, I have two friends born on Halloween, so I'll be sure to send you a birthday card because I'm excited. Cause, so right now, technically, you're, you're 87 and a half, which is kind of fun. Um, yes, it is. But you I, know what? Uh, I, w-
0: I have to tell you something funny. I wake up, nothing hurts. You know what they say about my age group? Whatever doesn't dry out, leaks. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm not like I'm not crying out I'm not leaking so far so good.
1: <laughs> You're feisty. I want um I have to ask you a while ago you mentioned what you said to Dr. Ruth, but what did what did Dr. Ruth say in response to you saying that to her? Did she laugh?
0: Yes, Oh, so no, she laughed and then actually we talked about uh, how men feel or really we the men's wives this is 1970s in the 1980s, how men's wives felt threatened by their husbands having colleagues who are female and how difficult that was for a lot of men because their wives did not like it. You know, you pulled evenings or weekends with a woman colleague. That was threatening to a lot of wives. And so we had a lot of issues when women started entering in droves into these male-dominated organizations when they were women attorneys and they were sharing um, cases together. I was the first woman in the College of Business. In fact, I'm the first woman at the Rotary Club here in San Diego. And so, you know, I'm always breaking new ground. There's a 550 men and me. And so I said to them, I don't want to be the only woman. You have to get another four or five. And so we were five who came in together at the Rotary, and we were very welcomed. But the men were saying, ah, a rose amongst the thorns. So if they were talking together, why do you all complaining about, what are you all plotting? It was, it was interesting times, being, you know, the first all the, in all these places. It was yeah. fun.
1: One of the first feminists. I would like to share with you my maternal grandmother, uh, who is even, I'm, I'm very petite, but she was 4'11", and she graduated from Spring Garden College in Philadelphia. <laughs> That's amazing. In the 40s, and she became the first female electrical engineer. She graduated at the top of her class. When she found a job, they would not pay her any more than the lowest paid men that worked at that company.
0: Well, now I know where you get it from, Charlotte. I, it's I, your think, grandmother.
1: I, I think I do. I know that's amazing. That, that
0: is an amazing story.
1: Wow, well, I'm impre- in, it's, it's even more impressive when my mother met my father and for the first time and was sitting at the kitchen table and his mother said, so what do your parents do expecting you know, that the father did this and the mother was a homemaker and she mm-hmm. told her about her mother being an electrical engineer and her face dropped and she said, I'll be right back, went upstairs to her bedroom and went into her jewelry box and pulled out a newspaper clipping and gave it to my mother. I'm sure, I'm sure it was no bigger than an inch and gave it to my mother and said, is this your mother? And my mother said, yeah, that's my mom. My, my future grandmother grandmother on my dad's side all the clipping and saved it in her jewelry box all those years because she was so inspired really isn't that that's wonderful interesting? that's wonderful
0: dear i love that story you know yes. when i was at the university of new hampshire I was uh, uh you know the only woman in the college of business the first day i was there i was walking down the hall and some man some of the professors uh, stopped me and says, oh here honey would you fax this for me I said, well, thank you, sir. I'd be glad to do it, except that when I have something to fax, will you do it for me? So he looked at me and says, well, who are you? I said, I'm Professor Josefowitz, and who are you? <laughs> I uh, love doing that kind of stuff, because all the men were so unexpectedly thinking. There's a, a cute. I was a redhead, a cute little redhead with freckles. She's no professor. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. You, you, of course, being uh, of Russian descent, And with this beautiful accent, you were very attractive. So I know that added to the sharpness of your dagger. (laughs) Because they they wouldn't expect a spitfire like you to come back like that. I had a gentleman, I was young, maybe 19 or 20, and he would stand so close to me when I was sitting down trying to intimidate me. So any time he came in the room, I made sure I stood up. And then he said something, and I said, you know what, you are so funny. He says, funny. I said, yeah, you just have this charm. I guess it's because you're just so harmless. And his face (laughs) just dropped. And all the women around me just busted out laughing, and he walked away red-faced. So I learned very early to use intelligence over brawn. You can, I can tell to you that
0: you do that really well. You know, I, I, I did a lot of workshops for women in power, how to mm-hmm. be powerful, sit powerfully, stand powerfully. So I always sit, tell a woman, there's a low chair, don't sit in the low chair. Sit on the arm of the chair so that you don't look like that like little lady lost in the, in the chair. Wear mm-hmm. red, wear heels, look men straight in the eye. And if you ever come late to a meeting, don't sneak in. Said, sorry I'm late, what are you all talking about? In other words, uh, be of be there, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Confidence, always. Well, on your website, I want to let everybody know, if you go to the website, Natasha has poems, she has thoughts, she has articles, and I assume this will grow over time. You said it's brand new, only a few days old. So happy birthday to your website. And I just Thank want to let you. everybody know. Mm-hmm.
0: Get yep, this book. And, and I'm expecting you in the fall, and I have this guest room for you,
1: Okay, Charlotte, this was just the best. Oh, I'm I'm happy you had a great time, and it's wonderful to speak with you, especially about something so close to my heart that not a lot of people would get me on that level, so I appreciate that, and I know you've got a Ph.D. in psychology, so it's probably not a stretch, but to connect at heart level like that is a real treat for me. And so once again, ladies and gentlemen, Natasha'sWords.com, the book is Living Without, the one you cannot live without. Beautiful book of poetry, an easy read, but it will keep you company if you are grieving. And if, in fact, you are entangled in the stages of grief, please don't suffer alone, especially if you're feeling hopeless. Reach out for help and know that our prayers are with you, that peace finds you often on your path to healing. Thank you once again, Natasha. I will talk to you very soon, and please let me know what you're up to. I'd be happy to have you back any we can even discuss other topics if you like. And thank you for all that you shared and all of your research and for all the work that you're putting into everyone And thank, thank you therapy. to you,
0: Charlotte. Uh, yes.
1: Welcome. I hope we have a future
0: when I you, I... you can be my best friend. <laughs> <I would. laughs> Take care, be well, and God bless.
1: God bless you, too. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. She's amazing. Unbelievable. Do get this book. It really helped me. Um, and got in touch with some feelings and got to purge and got inspired by her will to live a wonderful life. That is our show for today. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, God bless and be at peace.